The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. I want to offer a quick reminder that where our chapters break up, that stuff did not exist. So how do we get to chapter 16? Look at chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This verse gives us a good indication of why Paul starts here in chapter 16 talking about what he talks about. Because we've been through the rest of 1 Corinthians. This feels a little bit different. It feels like almost reading somebody's grocery list, uh, a to-do list. The phrase that I want to bring your attention to in verse 58 is when he says that we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So after his exhortation, chapters 1 to 15, Paul jumps right into details of his own work in the Lord, what that looks like in his life. So we, we just finished one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that reminds us of the truth of the resurrection Uh, the certainty of the Christian's resurrection based off of Christ's resurrection. And in that chapter, we're told that through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has given us, those who believe, victory over sin and death. And eventually, uh, complete victory over death. And when, when we reach verse 58, we had this one verse of application. And it leads us into chapter 16. The danger before we get started of seeing what Paul's work in the Lord is, is just talking about the word work for a second. When Paul talks about the, the word work, you might immediately think, as I in, intended to do so, to think job, like what I do for a living, uh, how I make my money, like a vocation. That's not, that's not what Paul is talking about. Um, he's, not immediate, he's not ultimately interested in what job we hold. He's talking about how we spend our time. How we live and move and have our being in the world, much in the same way that he uses the word walk in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Again, walk doesn't mean literally our gait, like how heavy or light our stride is. Like Paul's not concerned with that. What Paul is concerned with is how we live, what we do with our time. And I am closing in on three centuries, three centuries, three decades of age. Uh, my brother actually turned 32 days ago. It's weird. Um, I always considered us very close in age, and 30 is just kind of a weird age to hit. Uh, but I'm not very old, okay? I admit that. Um, I'm closing in on that quickly. But I understand already through 28 years of life that life involves a lot of work. It, it, it's, that's what life... Uh, you cannot live and not work. Every time you turn around, there's something else to be done. Every time you wake up, you think of what I need to do during this day. We're always thinking of work. And often when I'm talking to students and I ask, how's your week going? I, I, say, I say this, don't use the word busy. That is a four-letter word in my vocabulary. I don't want to hear how busy you are. We are all busy. That's the way life is. That's, that's, that's what it means to live, is to be busy and to work. Schedules are crammed full of things to do, requirements, preparations, especially this week as we turn to, to finals for students, deadlines. You can't be alive and not work. But Paul doesn't tell us to abound in work 
generally speaking. Like he adds a qualifier. We're to abound in the work of what? The Lord. But what does that mean? What, what is the work of the Lord? Well, contextually speaking, <coughs> in 1 Corinthians, he told us what, what the work of the Lord is, what God is, uh, is doing in the world. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says it like this. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the work of God in the world is doing what? Calling people, calling sinners into fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Lord. This is what he's doing in the world. And also something about the work of the Lord. Paul says here that working in the Lord is not in vain. He implies that if the work in the Lord is not in vain, the work out of the Lord is in vain. It's meaningless. It's fleeting. It's hopeless. And sometimes I've, I feel that. And maybe you do too. Maybe the work you do, sometimes you would qualify it as hopeless. Just a, just a discontentment with what we do with our time. Not because we're not getting things done, but because we, we have that nagging question in the back of our minds. Like, does, does any of this really matter? Like, am I just wasting my time? Am I killing time while time is killing me? Paul's encouragement here that abounding in the work of the Lord is work that is not in vain. It's work that matters significantly. So what does it look like to abound in the work of the Lord? If this is what the, the, the Lord is doing, calling people into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ by his spirit, what does it look like to, to do that work, to abound in that work? How do I know whether or not I'm doing the work of the Lord? What, is it, what does the work of the Lord even look like? This is where I think 1 Corinthians, an often overlooked and neglected passage in Scripture, just like all the ends of these epistles that have people's names and places we've never been and churches we've never visited and people that are dead now. Like, what does this have to, anything to do with me? I think a chapter like this can help us in answering that question. What does the work of the Lord even look like? And it gives us a picture of that. And I'll just quote to you 2 Timothy 3.16 before we do this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for rebuke, and for correction, for training in righteousness. So is, is 1 Corinthians 16 scripture? Is this God's word? Yes, that, that makes it profitable for something. And my prayer this morning is that, yes, it's profitable for things like dating Paul's epistles and and putting together the picture of Paul's ministry with the details that we see here. Yes, it's profitable for that kind of stuff for, for historical study. But my prayer for, for us this morning is that these verses in chapter 16 will help clarify what the work, the work of the Lord looks like in real life. And number one, where we aren't doing the work of the Lord, but rather our own work, busy with our own work, the work of Jacob or the work of whoever you are, that the Lord would change the content of our work. Like what we do with our time. That's my first prayer. And number two, where we, where we aren't doing the work of the Lord in the way of the Lord, that the Lord, that he would change the quality of our work and how we do it. So what we do and how we do it. The work of the Lord. That's, that's my prayer for us this morning in 1 Corinthians 16. Um, so let's jump right into it. Verses 1 to 4. 
Now concerning the collection for the now concerning the collection for the saints, um, what what does this mean? So we've seen this phrase "now concerning" appear multiple times throughout First Corinthians, and it always points back to something that they have written to Paul in their letter, and now Paul is responding to a question they've had. So what is their question? Their question is about this collection for the saints. So obviously when Paul was there before, he had already talked to them about a collection for, for the saints. What's it for? Well, it's, it's to go to Jerusalem, according to verse 3. And if we look, I mean, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem appears in a lot of epistles and a lot of uh, acts, um, verses in acts. And we know what's happened in Jerusalem is that the saints have fallen on hard time. Through, through religious oppression and even some uh, agricultural oppression, they're poor, they're needy. And Paul, as he goes around talking to churches, expresses to them the, the concern that he has for the saints in Jerusalem. And he's taking up a collection, an offering for, for them. What, is this, what does this mean for us? Um. As far as the work of the Lord, if Paul's doing the work of the Lord, what do we see here? We see that the work of the Lord involves caring for the saints. If, if we're trying to figure out, what do I do with my time? What is the content of my time as I'm trying to work for the Lord? Number one, we see here, caring for the saints. Why do we care for the saints? Why do we have love for the poor and needy? Why do we show grace and mercy to the poor? Remember, Christ showed us great grace and mercy when we were poor. And if you even look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 to 9, um, I'm not sure if it will be on the screen, but I'll read it uh, in case it's not. I say this to you, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We care for the saints. We give of our resources because Christ has done so for us. Now we do so in return to others. But I don't want to make this collection what it isn't. So what this collection isn't is the regular tithe. Paul isn't saying every week you give this amount of money and at this percent like we would see in the Old Testament. He's not saying this. But what he is saying, what this collection is, is a special occasion to meet a known need that the church in Jerusalem is facing. That's why he's collecting money. So what do we apply? I don't want to preach this as a way of saying, like, yes, regular, regular tithes is a requirement in, in New Testament Christianity. Um, that's a whole different sermon. But what I, what I do see is some applications for us today, caring for the saints the content of our work for the Lord. And this, this passage is a great reminder that the work of the Lord requires the resources of the Lord. Not because God needs our resources. He doesn't. But because he has ordained to work through the resources that he gives to his people. This is how the, the Lord has chosen to do his work. Through his people who give generously because they have received generously. So I said the Lord's resources, uh, the Lord requires to do his work, his resources. Why do I say they're the Lord's resources? Because the Lord is the one who prospers his people. We see that here. We see that earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul even just says the rhetorical question, what do you have that you haven't received? Everything we have is given 
by the Lord. And so what we see all throughout Scripture is that the Lord prospers his people for the purpose of his work. So whatever the Lord has given you, use it to care for the saints, whatever that means. We'll see more pictures as we go through 1 Corinthians 16. But we're supposed to care for the saints. That's the content of the work. But the quality, the quality matters. How we do this. Because the Lord likes a cheerful giver, right? But my own heart, I know it. And maybe yours as well. I give begrudgingly sometimes, right? Like, like I feel like this is, is the law and it's not love, right? So the quality of what we do matters. What do we see the quality of how we give and how we care for the saints? First, we see that we care for the saints with priority. Where do I see this? First day of the week. The first day of the week. Not leftovers, not as an afterthought, but immediately on the first day of the week. Um, this is not an off-the-cuff, whimsical offering. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll give. Um, Paul's been talking about this collection. He's about to return, and he's going to collect it. He doesn't want to talk to the people there, and all of a sudden they say, oh, yeah, we've, I forgot about this. Well, I got $5 in my pocket. Here you go. And I, I may give that $5 generously, but it tells me I have not been caring for the saints because I haven't even thought about the saints. I don't even know about their needs. The, the, the priority is, uh, is to care for the saints. There is a need. People are setting aside money each week until the day they are able to present it. Most of us can't even save money for ourselves. How is it that they are saving money for people they don't even know? Again, their hearts have been radically changed by the gospel. And this giving is not done out of pride, like, look how much I can support people with all my money. And it's not done in expectation of return. It's done out of love. So we care with priority. We, we care in unity. Look at the phrase, each of you. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. And, and not only the saints at Corinth, but look at the first verse. As I directed the church of Galatia. There, there's nothing special about the Corinthians collecting offering. This is, this is a global church-wide effort. We're to give and care for the saints in unity. Yes, some may give more than others, but this is not a means for boasting. If we let everyone participate, our boast is not in what we've given our, ourselves individually, but what collectively the Lord has done through us. This is why, I mean, even, even college campuses pick up this on their donation campaigns. Like, if everybody gives a dollar, and, you know, it's also a ploy to just get more money, but it's also like a way to show we are a body. We give in unity. If that's true for colleges, which I don't think about my college on a daily basis at all, how much more true should it be for the church where this is the priority of our lives, doing the work of the Lord? We give in unity. We also give proportionately. Uh, he says to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. This, don't, don't pass by... Um, don't pass by the fact that this prosper is a, a passive verb. So, um, as the Lord has prospered you. So, in other words, as he may prosper, I may give more than this person, but remember where it all came from in the first place. Right? It's, it, this is not like, hey, rich people give a lot of money and boast in that, but it's whatever the Lord has blessed you with, you give proportionately. Don't expect the widow to give more than two mites. Right? 
Don't, don't, don't expect the rich person to give too much. Expect him to give generously out of what he's or she has been blessed with. We give proportionately. So don't feel like your, your offering is not enough. Don't feel like I can only put a dollar because I don't, I don't have a job. I'm in, I'm in between jobs. I have no income. I have not been prospered very much this week. Don't feel bad about that. But give generously and proportionately. We also give hastily. See this, this phrase in, in these first four verses. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Why? Well, first of all, I think Paul probably doesn't want to, to spend his time teaching more about the collection when he gets there. Like he wants to teach about doctrine and discipleship and, and the good stuff. He doesn't want to go around knocking on doors with an offering plate. I don't blame him for that. And, and I don't think anybody enjoys that kind of work. It's, it's important, but it's not necessarily enjoyable. But why does he not want to collect when he comes? Probably because he wants to send that money on as quickly as possible. We're talking about people who are in need. And hastily, as I'm gone away, collect every day, or, or store up each day of every week so that it's already ready when I get there. And we can send it on and we can show love and support to the saints in Jerusalem as quickly as possible. We're talking about people who don't have food on the table. Hastily. And lastly, um, the work of the Lord involves care for the saints. And how do we do this? We do it freely. Look at, look at the way Paul talks about it in verse 3. Carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is a gift. This is not an obligation. And we, we look at other places in the New Testament, and Paul, is, Paul emphasizes the fact that I'm not commanding you to give. But I'm telling you, if you have taken the grace of the Lord seriously and understood what he's done with you, you will give freely and you will give willingly. That's the first thing I see in, in verses 1 to 4, um, that, we, that we care for the saints, that we do so um, with priority, in unity, proportionately, hastily, and freely of our own spirit. In verses 5 to 12, here's what we're going to see. The work of the Lord involves calling out and cooperating with the saints. The content of this work what, so what Paul is doing with his time so that we can examine our own hearts to see what we do with our, with our own time, whether or not it's the work of the Lord. What is Paul doing? Well, let's read. Verses 5 to 12. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. There are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Paulus, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. <coughs> I lost my voice this week, so I'm just glad I can talk, but it is, uh, throat's not doing so great. Um, what is Paul doing? He's traveling around. Why is he traveling around? To proclaim the gospel and to call people into fellowship with Christ Jesus. This is, this is the work that the Lord is doing. This is Paul's role in that. I mean, the Lord, John 10, 16, the Lord has other sheep that are not in this fold, and they need to hear his voice in order to be called to him. 
This is how the Lord has ordained his work to be done, through the preaching of his gospel and the calling out of the saints. So this is, this is the content of what Paul is doing. Calling out the saints. But he's also, as we see here in verses 5 to 12, cooperating with the saints. We see more, more names mentioned. Timothy and Apollos. And he's talking to people who are in Corinth. And uh, he's staying in Ephesus. He's cooperating with the saints. Look at uh, verse 16 of chapter, this same chapter. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. The emphasis here is on the fact that this is not a one-man show. This is not a one-man job. We learned all about that in 1 Corinthians 12. One body with many members, each doing their own part. Your faith absolutely is personal. It is personal, but it is in no way private. And what we do as we're doing the work of the Lord, we do together, working together with the saints. Um, Paul even says this like clearly, I hope to spend some time with you so that you may help me. Like help me. I'm going to spend some time with you. Cooperate with me in the work of ministry. And even Timothy is coming to see them. We, in verse, uh, chapter 4, of se- verse 17, back in the same letter, Paul says that Timothy is on his way to come see you. And here, what he, he encourages the saints at Corinth to cooperate with Timothy. What does he exactly say? He says, put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Like, I'm not the only one doing the work of the Lord. Timothy's doing it too. So when he comes to see you, put him at ease. Um, what does put him at ease mean? Uh, it's, it's really not all that clear. I'll, I'll tell you what I think. Um, uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 14 says this. This is talk, Paul talking about his imprisonment and the effects of it. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay? And if you remember 1 Corinthians 2, 3, what Paul says when he came to preach to the Corinthians, he said, I came to you with fear and trembling. Like, when you're doing the work of the Lord and you're, you're, you're teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord, there's always some fear about how it's going to be received. And for a number of reasons. I mean... What if they stone me, right? What if that happened to Paul? And what if they don't respond to the Lord, uh, fear of what's going to happen to you? But there's always some fear. And Paul's encouragement is to, to preach and speak the word boldly without fear, even though fear was something that he struggled with as well. And Paul's encouragement to the saints of Corinth is to say, put him at ease. And how would they put him at ease? That means they would receive the word with joy without back-talking like they might have done, you know, Corinthians are kind of a messed up church, right? Um, there's divisions among them, and people like this person more than this person, and they're showing off with their spiritual gifts, and like, it's a dangerous place to walk in here. I did not feel that when I walked in here this morning to preach the Word of God, because I know you guys, and I know how receptive you are to the Word of God. Corinth, not so, right? There's, just, there's some back-talkers and, and some argumentative people. We've seen that. So how can they put him at ease? Receive the word with gladness and joy. That's how. Do not despise him. That just further clarifies that this is probably what Paul is talking about. Don't despise him. Don't give him a hard time for the word of the Lord that he has to deliver to you. And also help him on his way in peace. As Paul asked the Corinthians to help him, he also asked the Corinthians to help Timothy. And and help him as he does what? 
returns to Paul. Like Paul needs Timothy. We see this like massive network of cooperation here. Paul needs Timothy. Timothy needs the Corinthians. Paul needs the Corinthians. The Corinthians need Paul and Timothy to teach the word of the Lord. Like it, it's all this network of cooperation. So as Paul is going around doing the work of the Lord, what's he doing? Calling out the saints. He's also cooperating with the saints. That's the content of what you're doing when you're doing the work of the Lord. Does this, does this resonate with how you abound in your work? Are you calling people to the Lord in evangelism and outreach? Are you cooperating with the saints? Or are you trying to do everything by yourself? A one-man show. Um, it also matters how we do this work. The quality of how we call out the saints to Christ and fellowship and also how we cooperate with the saints. I like these. Number one, with intentionality. Where do I get this from? Paul, in this, in this chapter, is, it's labeled in your Bible probably plans for travel, travel plans. He's planning. He's making plans. He's strategizing. He's doing this intentionally. We don't give Christ, we don't, we don't do the work of the Lord with our leftovers of our finances. The first day of the week we get it. We also don't do the work of the Lord with the leftovers of our time. He makes it a priority. He intentionally plans how he's going to serve the Lord. He has plans. And why, by the way? Because both money and time belong to the Lord. That's, that's why we do this with priority and intentionality. But we're intentional, but yet, keep this in mind, we have to be flexible. Look at the language of Paul. It pops up all over this, this uh, section. I intend, perhaps I will stay. I hope to spend wherever I go. Like there's some uncertainty in his plans. What is he certain about? That he's doing the work of the Lord. What is he uncertain about? Exactly when and where that's going to take him. We do the work of the Lord intentionally, but with flexibility. Because who... Um, Because we also, so we do, the, we do the work of the Lord with intentionality and flexibility, but we also do the, the work of the Lord with humility, yet tenacity. Where do I see this? Humility. Look at the phrase in this section, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. Who is Lord over the ministry? Who is, who is Lord over the work of the Lord? The Lord. He says this, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And let's not brush by the fact again that this is passive language. The door has been opened. So Paul does not say, I busted up in Ephesus. I kicked the door down metaphorically and I'm saving all kinds of people in here. He's saying as he's traveling, the Lord has opened this door to me. And I want to be humble enough, submit my life to Christ enough to walk through this door. Right? Um, we also have to see here that Paul delays a visitation that he wishes to make. He could visit Corinth now, but he delays his wishes. He sacrifices some of his own desires for the sake of the Lord. Again, this is working for the Lord in humility. Even Apollos doesn't visit in verse 12 because he doesn't have the opportunity currently. Why not? I have no idea. Speculation uh, would lead me to say, and hopefully um, just giving him the benefit of the doubt, that he's doing the work of the Lord in a very effective way, and he doesn't think that he should leave at the time. So Apollos said, 
It's not my will to go visit Corinth right now. Why? Because I'm doing the work of the Lord. The Lord is, is Lord over the work of the Lord. Yet tenacity. So we do it with humility, yet tenacity. Because sometimes I think about my own, my own self. Humility would lead me to say, oh, I'm going to go try to do the work of the Lord over here. And then I encounter some opposition. I say, well, the Lord must have been shutting that door. Okay, so I'll just go somewhere else. Paul doesn't say that's the case. What he says, a, a wide door has been opened to me for effective ministry, but there are many adversaries. But what does he say at the beginning? I am staying put in Ephesus. I'm not leaving. I'm staying despite persecution. And what we see here is tenacity is important because persecution is not evidence of the Lord's absence. Persecution is testimony of the Lord's presence. Like he, if, if there's no persecution going on, then we, we, would, we would be biblical and faithful to assume there is no work of the Lord going on in that place. So persecution exists because the work of the Lord is taking place. So where there is persecution of Christians, you will find the Lord at work. And ministry, as we see here, the work of the Lord, isn't about finding the path of the least resistance. So don't run from the hard places. Uh, I mean, we have to start at the ground level. Are we even concerned? Are we abounding at the, for the work of the Lord? Are we abounding in it? Um, most of us probably not. So when, when we are focused on doing the work of the Lord, do we run at the slightest inconvenience? Most of us probably do. And we would say, oh, the Lord has shut the door. No, that's the Lord opening the door. As we see here in this passage, don't run from the hard places. So the work of the Lord involves caring for the saints. The work of the Lord involves calling out the saints. The work of the Lord involves cooperating with the saints. In this last section, 13, all the way to 24, we're going to take as a whole, the work of the Lord involves loving the saints. We see this word love pop up over and over again throughout these verses. And I'll say at the outset, the work of the Lord requires the love of the Lord. Just like the work of the Lord requires the resources of the Lord, it requires the love of the Lord. First, to know the love of the Lord. You have to know the love of the Lord. You have to be changed by the gospel before you can do gospel ministry. So once you know the love of the Lord, then you can show the love of the Lord. So what does this look like? What is the content of loving the Lord? So these are the things we'll run through and ask yourself, am I doing these things? Does this look anything like how I spend my time, how I live my life? The first thing I see here, um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna skip verses 13 and 14 for a second and come back to them. Verse 15, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So the work of the Lord involves serving the saints. What is the content of loving the saints? First is serving. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So you are not doing the Lord's work if everything you do is for yourself. That should not be news to you. I hope you've heard that preached over and over again. But the reason why it's stated here again is because we forget it over and over and over again. Is everything you do for yourself. That's not the work of the Lord. That's not abounding in the work of the Lord. That's abounding in self-employment. The work of the Lord involves serving 
others. How are you serving others? Next, we see verse 16, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. The work of the Lord involves submission and subjection to others. This, um, it's possible when he's saying be subject to such as these, he's talking about the household of Stephanus specifically here, that since the household of Stephanus were the first converts to Christianity in the province of Achaia, they might have been the elders of a church there, which, which would mean that they are in authority and to be subject to authority that God has placed over you. Um, but at the same time, we see over and over again in Scripture the command to be subject and submit and love to one another. So you are not doing the Lord's work if you consider yourself above everyone else, as if you have no authority over you. That's not how the Lord works. And if this is the way you're carrying on with your life, then I would say something needs to change according to the teaching of Scripture. We love the saints by serving the saints. We love the saints by submitting to the saints. We also, according to this, love the saints by showing them hospitality. There is a church mentioned here. And that church meets in the household of Aquila and Prisca. Verse 19. Um, could you imagine doing something like this in your household? Like the, the amount of cleanup and preparation. Like talk about service and submission. But it's all for the sake of hospitality. The work of the Lord absolutely includes hospitality. Again, we're, hosp- we're hospitable with the resources we've been blessed with. Because what? They belong to the Lord. Don't doubt the power of hospitality. Romans 15:7 says this shortly, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. That's the power in hospitality. Is the ability to glorify God just by welcoming someone into our house. Why? Because Christ has welcomed us. The the unworthy guest, the enemy has been called to fellowship at table with Christ. Therefore, we call other people to fellowship at our table as well. And lastly, the content of loving the saints is simply maintaining fellowship. We see this other places in Scripture, but specifically here, just think about a few different things. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And I find Achaicus' name really funny because the province is named Achaia, and then they just put kus on the end, so it'd be like, USAicus, like it's, why would you name somebody after, I guess it's like Georgia, right? Or somebody's nickname Tex or something like that. Um, Sorry if your name is Georgia, I'm not trying to make fun of you. Uh, These people are probably, I don't know for sure, probably the people who delivered the letter from the Corinthian church to Paul. That's why Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. Um, They're probably the ones who delivered the letter, and Paul rejoiced when he saw them. Corinth is maintaining fellowship and contact with Paul, and Paul returns the letter while he's absent, even though he's making plans to go see them. There is a maintenance of maintaining a fellowship here between these people, so much so that Paul, even in the end of his letter, gets to talk about holy kissing, right? Talk about fellowship. Um, that's, some, that's some hearty fellowship right there. Uh, This is the content of of the work of the Lord. Like, seriously, are you going around kissing one another? And what that means here is is cultural and contextual. I don't recommend kissing your neighbor. I think it's it's 
probably way more offensive in our culture than it was theirs. If you remember Jacob and Esau, when they met each other uh, to be reconciled in their context, they greeted each other with a kiss. It was, it was a, a picture of reconciliation and unity. How do we show that here? I mean, hugs, right? Um, Christian side hugs, uh, specifically. Um, handshakes, you know, back rubs. Just kidding, don't do that. Um, but maintaining fellowship, like, like real personal like costly, invested fellowship. This is the work of the Lord. So you may be thinking, oh, the Baptists, you know, they're good at fellowship because they always eat together and they just like to eat. They don't really like fellowship. Well, that may be true for some of us, but what is really the purpose of that is actual true fellowship, developing love for the saints. That is the work of the Lord. So next time you eat together with a member of your church or another saint from another church or your family, like, be proud of that. Like boast in the Lord that he's brought you together and that you have fellowship with one another because as Bonhoeffer talks about in, uh, in Life Together, it's not promised. It's a gift. Enjoy fellowship. Maintain fellowship. You are shortchanging the work of God if the only contact you have with other believers is purely happenstance. Oh yeah, I maintain fellowship because I saw so-and-so at the grocery store the other day. Or we, we sat together in the movie theater. You know, a few rows apart. Or we play on the same sports team together. Our kids do. So we see each other once a week. What's bringing you together? Um, it's just random meetings. This is not true fellowship with intentionality. This and here is intentional fellowship. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are going to Paul in, a, in an age where there is no email. There is no texting. They are seeking him out. That is like costly maintaining fellowship. It is their desire. And how do we do this? This is when we jump up back to verses 13 and 14. How do we love the saints? It's pretty easy. With love. Out of love. This is verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And how this plays out um, in this chapter. Well, let's, let's look at some of the other qualities of how we love the saints and apply love to it. Uh, we love with anticipation. What does this mean? Where do I see this? Be watchful, verse 13. Be watchful. This is a command that Paul has in many of his letters. Uh, it's even something that he's talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 already, where he says, take heed lest you fall. Like, be on guard. Don't fall asleep on the job. And it's, it's really funny to me that he's already talked about this, just like he's already preached about love in chapter 13. He's already reminding us, let all that you do be done in love, because just... Three chapters later, he knows we've already forgotten. We have already forgotten. The same way in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, be watchful, be on guard, take heed. Five, six chapters later, probably five minutes of reading this letter, we've already forgotten. We've already come off our guard. This is hard. This is hard stuff. This is why we need constant reminders. But we love with anticipation. We're watchful. Most of the time, this watchfulness, this anticipation is for the coming of the Lord, and I see this um, typically about Christ's. Typically, it's about Christ's return. We see this in Second Timothy four eight, where Paul writes to Timothy, "Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing." We love the saints. And we have to do this with anticipation and love for the return of Christ. Again, 
to know Christ's love enables us to show Christ's love. So we love with anticipation. We love with strength. Um, After be watchful, he gives these commands. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. This is really uh, reminiscent of what he said in 1558. Be steadfast and immovable, right? Um, Now, standing firm in the faith and uh, acting like men and being strong. This, it's such a, I mean, I like the translation, act like men, but also, like, I don't like the translation, act like men. Uh, First of all, it's a good translation because it's almost equivalent. It's, It's literally the word, like, be manly. It uses the word man in the, the Greek word. Um, so I understand, and there, there was no female equivalent. There wasn't like be feminine. There was no verb in, in Greek that said this. But what Paul is, is um, recollecting, recollecting is Joshua commands like Joshua 1.9. <coughs> Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Paul is just falling right in line with the, the, the commands of um, the Old Testament and bringing them to the New Testament and saying, God is with you. Be strong. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Be steadfast and immovable and stand your ground when it comes to defending the faith. And remember, all this is done in love. Like if it says, let all that you do be done in love, and he's also telling us, be watchful, stand firm. Our standing firm is in love. Our strength is in love. This is a good reminder to me because I work out so much is don't be strong for the sake of being strong. Be strong for the sake of loving others. I've had this conversation. I think I've had this conversation with Cam. We used to work out together. And by the way, that was complete sarcasm. Don't work out a lot um, if you didn't catch that. Uh, When I work out, if I work out, I want to have in mind what the Lord can do through me even physically, right? Uh, I, I always picture, like, what if my child needs me? Um, we're, we're on a hike, and he gets bitten by a snake, and I need to pick up this child and run out of the woods, and I need to be physically fit in order to love and care for them. Like, uh, I, when I was in Ecuador, we had to hike, or we didn't hike. We were staying at a church 11,000 feet in elevation, and if you were not of good health, you weren't strong, you had not prepared your body that could be a debilitating uh, altitude, right? Um, and for some of us, it was. I definitely got uh, dizzy uh, when we were up there. But like, I want to prepare my body to be strong, not just theologically, which is true, stand firm in the faith, but also physically, not for the sake of being strong, but for the sake of loving the saints. Like even how you um, prepare your body should be done in love. So we love the, the saints with strength with the strength of the Lord. Um, And lastly, we love the saints with fondness. It is so obvious uh, in in this section, the fondness that Paul feels for the saints. Just go back through, um, starting in verse 13, or 15. I urge you, brothers, the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Why does Paul remember that? Because it meant a lot to him. Like, he remembers them fondly. Like, I remember the first converts in Achaia. I love those people. I remember baptizing them fondly, as he talked about in the beginning of of, uh, this letter. 
He remembers the first converts, converts fondly. Uh, in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. Um, they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Like you, I mean, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to hear the quality in Paul's voice when he's talking about that. I rejoiced at their coming. Like how many of us show up on Sunday morning and then uh, another person walks in the door and we just, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. I've missed you. I love you. I, I'm so glad we're back in fellowship with one another. Like nobody does that, first of all, because it'd be kind of weird. But it's, if your heart is not lifted up and rejoicing when you see your brothers and sisters that you have fellowship with, something is wrong. And if there is contention between you, work it out. And if you need a mediator, call one of the elders. Call another brother. Like, if you need to work something out in your relationship, let's do that. But if your heart does not rejoice, you are not loving the saints. And therefore, the content of your life, the work of your life, is not the work of the Lord. You must love the saints. And this, this rejoicing is an overflow of the love that God has shown us. I, I need to keep reminding you, because I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm telling you the proper response to the truth of the gospel. That Christ has loved us, therefore we love others. Uh, the, the language is so interesting. Um, they made up for your absence. So you, you may have had a translation that you've seen before that when, the, when Paul was away from the church at Corinth, there was something lacking in the Greek. That's the word lacking. So in other words, when he was away, he felt a hole in the fellowship. He felt a disconnect. Like how many of us go for a couple of weeks without seeing somebody and we actually feel like there's something lacking in their absence? Um, maybe, maybe not. And so when these three people deliver the letter, most likely, and, and see Paul, it's filled up and he rejoices at that because he felt an emptiness when they weren't there. That is loving the saints. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Lastly, what we need to do is talk about the last two, two verses, three verses. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Is that loving? Like that's, that's serious language. Paul only uses this word like five or six times in the New Testament. He, he reserves it specifically for when he is really fired up about something. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul, I thought you just said, let all that you be done be done in love. You just cursed people. How is this loving? Um, hopefully these statements will be familiar to you and I'm not telling you anything, anything new. You protect the flock because you love the flock. This is a flock, the church of Corinth. And Paul, out of love, wants to protect them. If someone is coming in here with no love for the Lord, and in 1 Corinthians 12, we hear that there might even be someone that's saying Jesus is, is accursed in, in the congregation. How does Paul love the flock? By protecting the flock. And if anyone is in there saying something contrary to the gospel that he preached, be rid of them. Like even 1 Corinthians 5, when somebody is sleeping with a stepmom, like kick that person out of here. I'm protecting the flock. Uh, Galatians 1, 8-9. I, I love these verses, and they're helpful because this is two more examples of Paul using a word that he rarely uses. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we've preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel 
contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So here, preaching the gospel contrary to what they've received. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul's number one concern is not with people's wrong actions, but with people's wrong affections. He is worried about who the people in the church love. If they do not love the Lord, they are dangerous to just continue in fellowship with them if they're preaching a gospel contrary to the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about visitors that are like, hmm, I wonder what this gospel is about. Hmm, I wonder what this whole Jesus thing is really about. I wonder what church, what is church? But if someone is in here preaching a gospel contrary to, to it and stirring up divisions in the church and reducing the work of the Lord that's going on, let that person be accursed. And if you don't think that's love, then you don't understand how the Lord loves us. Are there going to be people at the end of time that the Lord separates from him forever? Yes. Are there people in scriptures that the Lord has completely devoted to destruction for the sake of his people? Yes. But God is love. Uh, Ty was telling me right before um, they went back to children's church, he has a screwdriver in his hand. I said, why do you have a screwdriver in your hand? Um, and he said, this is, my, this is my holy shank. And I was like, what are you talking about? Should we, we need to have an elders meeting immediately if you're teaching the children. No, but he, was, he, was, he said, no, I'm going to use an example of how if my son took the screwdriver and stuck it in the light socket and it was going to electrocute him, the loving thing for me to do is to stop that person from, from hurting themselves, from harming themselves, from straying into error. Just like James, the end of James says, if, if anybody's wandering from the truth and you bring that brother back, you save his soul from death. Like this is what Paul is saying. I'm trying to save your soul from death. And if anybody's teaching you a gospel contrary to what we've delivered to you and what was delivered to us by Christ, let that person be accursed. That is true love. The question for us this morning, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? You're probably abounding in work. You're probably drowning. That's the way the life goes. But is it more or less self-employment? Or have you been employed by the Lord? Whose kingdom are you building? If it's your own, it's in vain because it won't last. Work that has eternal impact is work that cares for the saints. Work that is never in vain is done with the purpose of calling out the saints. Work that stands the test of time is done in cooperation with the saints. And work that never fades or ends is work done out of love for the saints. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.